Well, for one final time, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the epistles of John. We're going to be in 3 John this morning. And finishing that up, we began this series in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John uh, about 10 months ago. It's been 25 messages in those three shorter books, and you're probably tired of hearing it, but our theme throughout has been that of absolute certainty. And last week in our text, we were introduced to a man named Gaius, and he's the one that this third letter is addressed to. And John wrote this to him in verse 2. He said, Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. Do you remember that? Is your soul getting along well this morning? Is everything going well with you? Are you in good health? This is what John was actually hoping and praying for, for Gaius. There were, there were three parts to this, you might remember. He's praying that he would enjoy good physical health and that he would enjoy social and relational and even financial health and especially, foremost, that he would enjoy good spiritual health. And so he wanted all these things for his dear friend Gaius, but foremost was that spiritual health. And we saw it isn't wrong to desire or even pray for health in all of these areas of our own lives and in the lives of those we love. But imagine being in a place where all of these things are going well. Like they're healthy in your life. Maybe you're there this morning. Maybe you'd say, yeah, I'm enjoying good physical health, social, relational, financial health, and most importantly, good spiritual health. What a blessing. But maybe you'd say, wow, I'm struggling in all those areas. Or maybe one or two. But it's not wrong to desire to be healthy. And again, we're not talking about a prosperity gospel. God's foremost concern is for our spiritual health. And so Gaius was doing well in his spiritual health. His soul was getting along well, it says, and he was walking in the truth. We saw in verses three and four. Yet, not everything around Gaius was going well. His church was a mess. His church was a mess. The church that he attended and we're going to see just some of the problems. They were having a crisis in leadership. I'm curious, how many of you have been part of a church that had a crisis in leadership? Look around. Wow. It's astounding and it's sad. But it's, the, it's, it's reality. Many churches have a crisis in leadership. Well, this morning we're going to be seeing this leadership problem in the local church. And the message title last week was Absolute Certainty That Some Will Be Faithful. This week, it's the flip side. Absolute certainty that some will wander. And we'll look at three parts to this. We're going to look at leadership in verses 9 and 10. And then secondly, discipleship in verses 11 and 12. And finally, fellowship in 13 and 14. 
Now, almost all of our time will be spent in the first section on leadership. I think that's really the focus of this text. It's where I concentrated most of my time this week. We'll touch on the others as well, but this area of leadership is what we're gonna really look at closely. So we'll start by reading through the passage together and then uh, we'll jump into it verse by verse. So John says, I wrote to the church but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friends, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings Greet the friends there by name. And this is how John ends this short letter to his friend Gaius. Well, last week we were introduced to Gaius. This week it's going to be Diotrephes. And as with Gaius, the only reference to him in the Bible is right here in this short letter of 3 John. That's all we know about him. But it's enough. We see enough there. We know, first of all, his name, Diotrephes, means nurtured by Jupiter. Nurtured by Jupiter. Jupiter was the mythological chief god of the Romans. He was the Roman counterpart to the Greek god Zeus. He was seen as the top dog in, Greek, in Roman mythology. A Jewish family would never name their child nurtured by Jupiter. So we can tell that Diotrephes was a Gentile. And we can also tell that he was likely either a leader, perhaps an elder, or a very influential person in the local church, the same church that Gaius belonged to. So we want to look first at leadership. And verse 9 reads, I wrote to the church... But Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. Right away, we can see that there's trouble brewing. Because Diotrephes loves to be first. He'll have nothing to do with us. And us here is referring to John and the other apostles along with the Christian workers that were with them. Bringing the gospel message to the unsaved and teaching and building up the church. Remember John walked with Jesus. He was handpicked by Jesus. He was one of his three closest disciples. He saw Jesus calm the storm. He was in the boat when it happened. He saw him walk on the water. He saw him raise the dead. John saw Jesus transfigured right before his very eyes. John saw him crucified. He was at the tomb. He saw the resurrected Lord. He saw him ascend into heaven. John was there for all of these things. 
He saw it with his own eyes. He emphasized that in 1 John 1.1. And so these, these men are the ones that God chose to reveal his gospel to and through. And so by denying God's apostles, Diotrephes is also denying God's revelation. Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 10, 16, he said, He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me also rejects him who sent me. So Diotrephes is saying no to the apostles. He's saying, in doing so, he's saying no to Jesus and to God the Father. So, what is the first sin that you see of Diotrephes in verse 9? It's pride. Pride is the first sin. He loves to be first. Pride is seen in this desire to be number one. And it's the same thing. It was Satan's first sin. Let me read you from Isaiah 14. It says, you, referring to Satan, said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountains. I will ascend above the top of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Satan's desire was to be number one. To raise himself above everything that God is and everything that he had created. He was prideful. And that's the same thing we see here in Diotrephes. He wanted, he loves to be first. And, and this pride is going to lead to a whole array of other sins as we're going to see. But here's a question. I have questions too. Here's a question. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9.24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Okay, here's my question. He's saying we should strive to be first, to win the prize. So what's the difference between Diotrephes, who loves to be first, and what Paul is saying to the Corinthians? What's the difference? I don't know. <laughs> I'm asking you guys. Actually, here's the difference. The difference is between a healthy ambition for spiritual excellence and the sinful desire for personal prominence. That's what we see in this passage. In Acts, Paul's emphasizing the importance of devotion, of perseverance and spiritual excellence in Christ. And, and this type of pursuit is rooted in humility and in love and in a desire to see God glorified. But Diotrephes, on the other hand, he displays a self-centered ambition and a disregard for others. He places his personal gain over the well-being of others. This was a, a sinful, destructive form of ambition. And it's rooted in pride. It's essentially self-worship as opposed to the worship of God. And so that's the difference between striving to win the prize and Diotrephes 
who loves to be first. One of the most important characteristics for any church leader is humility. It's humility. Now you might not see that spelled out explicitly in the elder and deacon qualifications, but it underlies almost every one of them. In 1 Timothy 3, we see that leaders must be above reproach, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. It says he must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited, filled with pride, and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's traps. All of these things require a large measure of humility. And in 1 Peter 5, the passage begins to the elders among you and it lists these instructions. And then it says in verse 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Church leadership is no place for prideful, power-hungry people who would place their own ambition above the well-being of others. It, it's, it's totally antithetical to the servant leadership that Jesus demonstrated. Remember we saw last time, we talked about the greatest of all time, the goats. Jesus said, anyone who wants to be great must become your servant. So his whole model for church leadership was built upon this principle of servant leadership, of humility, not pride. We've, we've seen so many mega churches, well, we'll call them mega church meltdowns. We've seen that in recent years, haven't we? A number of high profile mega church meltdowns. And in the aftermath, as the people are sifting through the ashes and the bodies, they usually find at the heart of it all a prideful leader who elevated his own ambition above the well-being of others. And here's the thing. Smaller churches aren't immune to this either. I'm not immune to this. And so humility, humility is one of the most important characteristics for any church leader. I, I love that we have an elder team that is humble. Nobody has a big ego or a personal agenda. They have a deep desire to do the will of God, even at great personal expense. And it's been a hallmark of our elder teams here for a couple decades. And Walt used to say it's rare, and it's beautiful. And it's just so, such a joy to be part of a team where those men love each other and care about each other and want more than anything else to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. And so our deacon team, we see the same things. And so when we go looking for a leader, we don't look for somebody that's dashing and, and, and successful in business and influential and charismatic. We look for leaders that are humble, that are serving, that are doing the work of ministry already. 
Humility is the most important characteristic of any leader in, in, a, in a church. And so Diotrephes' pride, it led him into this array of other sins. Look at what else verse 10 says. Well, actually, I'm going I'm to save that, but it lists out three more things, and we'll come to those in just a minute. So what does John do about Diotrephes? What does he do in our text? He calls him out publicly. Think about this. John, the disciple of love, the apostle of love, he calls him out by name, publicly. Look at what he says at the beginning of verse 10. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing. He's going to call him out before the church. Let everybody know what's happening. Does that strike you as maybe a little harsh, insensitive, unloving? Well, this is the disciple of love. And in, in doing this, he's not being mean or spiteful. He's being loving and, and he's protecting and he's purifying the church. Romans 16 verse 17 gives this instruction. It says, I urge you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. How are you going to watch out for them? I mean, when somebody identifies that, if there's not repentance, they have to be called out. Can you think of an example of Jesus calling out someone in the church? Now you might say, well, no, Paul. Jesus went back up into heaven before the church age, before Pentecost, when the church was born. And you'd be right. But there's still a really good example of Jesus calling out somebody in the church. And you know what's cool? He did it through this man, John, who penned this epistle. And you'll find it in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And I want to read it to you, beginning in verse 18. These are the words of Jesus. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, uh-oh, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching she leads my servants into, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all of the churches will know that I am he who searches their, the hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to his deeds. Ooh. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Going to strike this wayward child. <laughs> that, that's strong, isn't it? This is Jesus publicly calling out a church and its leadership for tolerating sin in this person of Jezebel. Tolerance is not a virtue when we're dealing with sin in the church. We hear so much about tolerance. You need to be tolerant. Oh, Christians of all people should be tolerant. Well, when it comes to sin in the church, we're not to be tolerant. 
We have to deal with it. It's a matter of loving and protecting and purifying the church. So, now before we go on to our list of people that we want to call out publicly, <laughs> maybe you know, maybe you have some in mind. I'm going to call that person out. Well, we need to first examine ourselves and make sure that we're not guilty of the same sin. We need, as Jesus said, we need to take that board, that plank out of our own eye so we can see to remove the speck in our brother's eye. That's the first thing. And next, we need to go to the person privately, one-on-one. -on -one. Just as Matthew 18 tells us in verse 15, it says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Don't be talking to other people about it. Go talk to your brother or sister directly. Just the two of you. That's the Lord's instruction. But then Matthew 18 continues. It says, But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, he's not a saved individual. So we can be sure that John went to Diotrephes one-on-one -on -one first. And then he told some more people. And he would not listen. In fact, verse 10 says he will have nothing to do with us. He's not willing to listen. So now John is going to tell it to the church so that Diotrephes' deeds might be exposed and others might help try to bring him to a place of repentance. That's the purpose of telling it to the church so that those relationships can be leveraged. Please, I want to plead with you. Turn from that. Repent. Be restored to God and to the, the church. So this is what John has to resort to doing. There have only been a handful of times in my 15 years as an elder here that we've had to bring anything before the church. I think probably four or five. And it says in part that God's process works. Most people repent almost right away. It usually works one-on-one. -on -one. You know, if someone comes to us with a problem with somebody, well, the first thing we're going to say is, have you gone and talked to them personally, just the two of you? Well, no, <laughs> we're not going to call them out for you. You need to go talk to your brother first. But if you will not listen, take a few more along. Maybe that's an elder or a pastor to go with you. And if you will not listen to them, if you will not repent, then the matter gets put before the church. So we've only had to do that a couple times. Some people, churches, many churches don't do this. They go, yeah, it, it doesn't work. It's not practical. It doesn't matter if it works or not. We're committed to it because this is what God says we're to do. So like it or not, this is God's prescription and we're going to follow it. So some people don't have a, a problem with making a particular sin, a personal sin, making it public. They see it as a violation of privacy. Well, first of all, the matter is not being placed before the general public, but before the church. 
And the church is our spiritual family, and this is family business. This is what we do in the context of a church. And secondly, this is what God tells us to do, as I said. And so here at Riverside, we're committed to following God's prescription. Now, on one occasion, when a matter was brought before the church, there was one individual in particular that had a very strong emotional reaction to the idea of this sin being put before the church. And you know what? It later came to surface that that individual herself was involved in a deep matter of personal sin. And so the reaction was probably conviction and guilt and fear that my sin's going to be put before the church. Well, if you don't repent of it, it will be. See, this is God's method of purifying the church. Church discipline has a purifying effect on the church. And in that case, it brought this other situation to the, sur to the surface. It was an affair that someone was having with another member of the church. And so it came out and... Sadly, rather than repentance, there was a running away. We'll just leave the church. But this is, nonetheless, the church was purified. And so this is God's instruction for dealing with sin in the church. So Diotrephes, he didn't want any input from the apostles. He wanted to be first. He was large and in charge. And he didn't want any of the apostles interfering with what he was doing. He didn't want them threatening his power. And so what did he do? He began spreading false information about them. Sin number two. He began gossiping. Well, number three, really. He didn't want anything to do with the apostles. He was prideful. Now he began gossiping maliciously. I think that if Satan had his own beatitudes, I don't know if he does or not. But if he did, I think one of them would be, blessed are those who gossip. For they will destroy the church. That'd be his beatitude. It is very destructive. Listen to what God says in Proverbs 6. I'll read verses 16 through 19. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked schemes. Feet that are quick to rush into evil. And a false witness who pours out lies. And a man who stirs up dissension among the brothers. You see diatrophies in any of those? Yeah, almost, almost all of them. He embodies many of these, especially the, the pride of haughty eyes, the lying tongue, the false witness, the, the pouring out the lies, stirring up dissension. But there's even more. Verse 10 continues. It says, not satisfied with just that. He refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. He got his own form of church discipline going on here. You want to welcome these apostles and missionaries? You're out. You're out of our church. Can you imagine that? Gaius was opening up his home and showing hospitality to these traveling Christian workers. And John said to, of Gaius, you're faithful in what you're doing for the brothers, even though they're strangers to you. See, these Christian workers were really dependent upon the support, 
the hospitality, the, gen the generosity of the church. Because it said in verse 7, they're receiving no help from the pagans. They were dependent upon the church. They're hundreds of miles, months' journey from home. And they're out ministering the gospel. But Diotrephes was doing the exact opposite of Gaius. He wouldn't extend any hospitality. He refused to welcome the brothers. And worse, he'd use his authority to excommunicate anyone that tried to welcome the brothers. He was directly opposing the Lord and the spread of the gospel. Did you know that showing hospitality is one of the qualifications for being an elder or a deacon? You ever thought about that? We don't put a lot of emphasis on hospitality. I, I had the privilege of teaching a Bible study on, on hospitality about 20 years ago. And it, it really changed my understanding of it. I want to just share with you a little bit of it. Um, but Titus, Titus 1, first of all, says an elder must be hospitable. And the other passage with qualifications, 1 Timothy 3.2 says the same thing. An overseer, an elder, a pastor, a shepherd must be hospitable. And it's not just a command or a qualification for elders. It's a command for everybody. Listen to Romans 12.13. It says, share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And 1 Peter 4.9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. God places a really high value on hospitality, doesn't he? Now when we think of hospitality, we might think of throwing the perfect holiday party. Like we got the house all decorated, we've cooked a beautiful meal, we have this beautiful table setting with the centerpiece and, and we're going to entertain our guests. And we think of that as hospitality. Well, for $11, you can buy a book by, uh, it's called Martha Stewart's Menus for Entertainment. And it says that it is the indispensable guide to hospitality. But is it? Is that biblical hospitality? Here's what Biblical hospitality looks like. It's not what's in Martha Stewart's book. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, beautiful thing to cook a lovely meal for your guests and that. But biblical hospitality is literally the love of strangers. It's the love of strangers. It's this weird, weird word, philoxenia. Philos means loving and xenos means a stranger. Hospitality is a willingness to welcome into your home people who wouldn't ordinarily belong there. Hebrews 13.2 said, Don't forget to entertain strangers. For by, doing, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. And that phrase, entertain strangers, it's the exact same word. Hospitality. It means to welcome strangers. Someone once said, hospitality is making your guests feel at home even when you wish they were. <laughs> Why is hospitality such a big deal to God that he would elevate it to an elder requirement and make it a command for all of his people? Because hospitality goes to the heart of who God is. You can trace it all the way back to the Old Testament. When the Israelites were 
strangers, aliens in Egypt, God made a home for them and he brought them to it. And then he commanded them to do the same thing for others. He said in Leviticus 19.34, the alien living among you must be treated as one of your native born. Love him as yourself. Why? For you were aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. In other words, this is what I did for you, Israel. You were aliens. You were foreigners. I made a home for you and I welcomed you in. Now you're to do the same. You're to imitate me, is what God's saying. So when you see a stranger, an alien in your land, you're to welcome him in as one of your own and make a home for him. Just as I made a home for you, is what God's saying. And it's not based on the worthiness of the stranger. It's based on grace. Because that's what God's hospitality was based on. Nothing but grace. Now what about the New Testament? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 says that the Gentiles, most all of us here except for a few, the Gentiles, anybody that's not a Jew by birth, the Gentiles were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. That's pretty bleak. But then it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And then in verse 13, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. He welcomed us as Gentiles into his household through the blood of Christ. Isn't that like the ultimate act of hospitality? God in his grace reached out to us Gentiles and he said, I'm, I'm delivering up my son for your sake. Just like we celebrated in the Lord's Supper this morning. And he invited us in and he made us members of, us, of his household, adopted children seated at his table. Not because we deserved it, but only based on his grace. He lavished his hospitality around us upon us and now he tells us to do the same thing as I've done for you you're to do for other people you're to be hospitable you're to welcome strangers into your home now what does that look like today I don't see a lot of pastors and missionaries just like you know homeless on the street walking by communities looking for a place to stay some are itinerant ministers but what about opening up our home maybe to a missionary family on home assignment? Welcoming them into our home. Maybe it's inviting over some people who are new to our fellowship. Inviting them into our home. Serving them. Helping them build relationships and integrate into the local body. That would be a form of hospitality. Maybe it's reaching out to someone in the church who's struggling with loneliness. Maybe it's just using your dining room, and your living room as a place where you can bring some unbelievers God's put in your place and you can share the gospel with them. That would be hospitality. We should, we should think and pray about ways that God could use our home for just such things, for doing his kingdom work. So God puts his high value on hospitality. Gaius was hospitable. 
He was faithful. He was walking in the truth. Diotrephes was the exact opposite. He was the antithesis of Gaius. And so we'll move on now to discipleship in verses 11 and 12. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Now, it's well known that we as humans like to imitate other people, don't we? There's a number of reasons why. One, we imitate people for the purpose of learning. We learn by observing others and imitating them. You see this especially with children, and this imitation as a form of learning is especially true in the early stages of life. A child sees his parent doing something and he mimics it. So the examples that we have around us are important, especially, especially early in our life. We've been dealing with some heavy things. Let me lighten it up a little bit. Well, let me go back. Don't go there yet. It's supposed to be a, a blank slide in there. Picture it. So, I heard about another man named John who adopted a parrot. Now, you know parrots like to imitate. And this parrot had an attitude and even a worse vocabulary. He had been around some questionable people. Every word out of the bird's mouth was rude and obnoxious or laced with profanity. And so this man, John, tried to change the bird's behavior by consistently saying only polite words and playing soft music and anything else he could think of to try to clean up the bird's behavior. Well, finally, John was fed up. He yelled at the bird and the bird yelled back at him. And so he shook the parrot and he got more angry and the bird just got ruder. And so finally, he grabbed the bird, and he put him in a freezer, and he closed the door. Well, for about the first two minutes, the parrot kicked and squawked in there, and then it got real quiet. And he thought, after about a minute of silence, uh-oh, I hope I haven't permanently hurt him. Well, he opened up the freezer door, and the parrot calmly stepped out onto John's outstretched arm and said, I believe I may have offended you with my rude language and actions. I'm sincerely remorseful for my inappropriate transgressions, and I fully intend to do everything I can to correct my rude and unforgivable behavior. Well, John was stunned at the change in the bird's attitude. And as he was about to ask the parrot what had made such a dramatic change in his behavior, the bird continued, Sir, may I ask what the turkey did to offend you? <laughs> It woke him up. It shook him up. But the point is that we learn by observing and imitating others, especially early on in life. And another reason we imitate others is social bonding. It helps us feel part of a social group or a community or a team. Now this illustration. Take, for instance, bikers. Okay, I, I, I love bikers, but have you noticed that they all tend to dress the same? Black leather vests or black leather jackets, lace-up black boots, big silver rings, bandanas, chains. They all kind of imitate that because it creates a bond amongst them. They feel part of a community. And so this is another reason why we tend to imitate people. Now, while we're talking about bikers, I told Jim that I'd mentioned that 
next week from Tuesday, June 6th, is going to be the first ride of 2023 for the Riverside Riders. And if you're interested, you can see Jim Burnett. Jim, hold your hand up back there. There you go. Jim doesn't imitate anyone with that big yellow Honda. <laughs> He's in a league of his own with that thing. But Jim is, leads our Riverside Riders ministry, and it's a great thing that they're doing. But even if we don't think we're imitating others, we even imitate people subconsciously. We don't know we're doing it. And this is what some researchers call the chameleon effect or the mirroring effect. For instance, if we're talking to someone and they have their arms folded or their hands in their pockets or leaning on the table, we tend to mimic that as a way of creating this rapport with them. We imitate behaviors, gestures, facial expressions, even like vocal patterns. If they're talking slowly, we tend to slow down our speech. They say it's a way of creating this social rapport and connection with others, even though we do it subconsciously. So every one of us imitates other people. And it comes down to this question, who are we going to imitate? See, in verse 11 says, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. And what makes us so difficult to live this out in the church is that we live in a culture that's rapidly decaying morally. It's happening all around us and the tendency can be to imitate that and even bring it into the church. To think that democracy and how a country is governed is the way a church should be governed. Like we'll just all vote. Like we're going to, or we're going to impeach that guy like there's there's just all of these ideas and our behavior that we see emulated out there we can so easily bring into the church and our patterns of speech the things that we do to one another you know it's nothing new Israel faced the same challenge in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 18 9 God said when you enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you do do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there and in the same way, New Testament believers were not to imitate the world around us. Romans 12, 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Don't mimic that. Don't get sucked into that. But to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I mean, we all want to feel like we fit in, don't we? We want to be part of a community. We want to be accepted. But if we're finding our identity in the wrong things, we'll begin imitating that speech, that behavior. We'll become conformed to that. And we won't be a reflection of the character of God. So in this little letter, John gives us these two clear examples. One was a good example in Gaius, and the other was a really bad example in Diotrephes. Gaius is extending hospitality. Diotrephes is cutting them off denying them any access to the church and, and, and excommunicating those that would welcome him. So, discipleship is all about learning to imitate Jesus. Jesus said, follow me. And the cool thing is that the word for followers, actually, the word, I probably won't pronounce it right, but it's mimetes, mimetes, and it sounds familiar, right? To mimic or to imitate. That's what it means to follow. To mimic or to imitate. We're to imitate Jesus. 
God says, be imitators of God. And so the only way we're going to be able to do this is to abide in Christ. To stay so closely connected to the Lord that we take on his character. We do that when we get into his word and we understand it and we apply it. When we talk about it through the week. When we hold each other accountable. When we model Christ-like love for other people. When we call out sin in the church. We're, we're, we're abiding in Christ. So the Apostle Paul, in fact, said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So we need leaders who imitate Christ. And we need to look at and imitate their way of life as well in as much as it aligns with the truth of God's word. So verse 11 says, anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does not or who does what is evil has not seen God. Now, I don't know if Diotrephes was saved or not. I don't know if he was a, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing or if he was just a believer who had wandered. We don't know. We can't see his heart like God can. But we know for certain that some in the church will be faithful to follow Christ. And others are going to wander. And so we need to be discerning. We need to evaluate how a person's actions line up with the truth of God's word. And we need to imitate that which is good. Verse 12 says, Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him and you know that our testimony is true. Well, this Demetrius now, another character, he was probably the man delivering the letter. And John is just saying, you can trust this man. He's a good guy. Now, who might be a Gaius or a Demetrius in your life? Who might be someone whose life lines up with the truth of God's word? To where God would say, imitate that person. Now, we might on the surface say, well, we're to imitate God. We're to imitate Christ. We're to follow him, not man. True in a sense, but see, other believers help us see what the Word of God looks like lived out. Who do we see? Christian business leaders, Christian parents, Christian husbands and wives, Christian, you name it, students, employees, servants. We can see what Christ looks like lived out in a very practical way. Inasmuch as their actions align with the truth of God's word, like he says of Gaius and of Demetrius. So think about who those people are. And then observe them. And then imitate the good that you see in their lives. So we're going to just wrap up here and look quickly at this third part fellowship in verses 13 and 14. Again, I spent almost all my time working on the first section and we're out of time. So it says, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. Now, we see once again, just like in John chapter 2, that as personal as this letter is, pen and ink are a poor substitute for face to face fellowship. He says, there's more I want to tell you. See, we can more effectively communicate in person than we can through a letter. It's a real challenge 
for a letter to convey the intention and the tone of your communication. And it's a greater challenge for the person on the other end to really read what you're saying through that letter. Think about maybe you send a letter to someone, you might think, oh, they must have liked it. I didn't hear back. Or you could think, well, they must be really upset I didn't hear back. How will you ever know? Pen and paper is inherently limited. He says, look, get together face to face, especially when you're talking about a, a really difficult issue like they had here in our text. So one more quick thing is he says, peace to you. With everything going on, the meltdown in Gaius' church, Gaius' church, he says, peace to you. See, we can experience peace in the midst of all those trials when we're walking in the truth. And so he encourages him in that. Well, I'm glad. He said, you know, there's so much more. I will talk about it in person. I'm glad that at least this little bit of it was recorded on paper. And God captured and preserved it in his word so that we can hear and learn from it. So let's wrap this up. And here's just a couple points to take away. First of all, humility is one of, if not the most important characteristic for any church leader. Because pride will lead us into an array of sin. We saw it in the life of Diotrephes. We see it in the lives of some Christian leaders today. You saw it in churches. Almost half of you have been in a church where there was a crisis in leadership. Humility is one of the most important characteristics. Pray for your leaders. I love it when you guys say, man, we're praying for your, our elder team as they're meeting. Have people text me, Paul, I'm praying for you as you prepare. That means so much to me because apart from the power of God and the spirit of God working through that, nothing good's going to happen. So humility. Secondly, God has given us a process for dealing with sin in the church. And we need to first examine ourselves and then go to a person one-on-one, -on -one, just the two of you. If you won't listen, bring another brother or two or sister into it. But if they will not listen to them, then we have to tell it to the church. That would be the responsibility of the elders. Tolerance is not a virtue when dealing with sin in the church. Third, hospitality of all things is a qualification for elders and a command for all believers. It goes to the heart of who God is. He adopted us into his household through the shed blood of Christ and he wants us to reflect his character to others. So think about how can I show hospitality, Christian love to strangers even. Do not imitate what is evil but what is good. We all imitate people just a question of who we're going to imitate. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with wearing a biker jacket, by the way. It's just an example that we tend to imitate. We become actually like the objects of our worship. To be very careful. You see that with kids following rock stars. Before long, they look a lot like them and talk a lot like them. So who are we going to imitate? Who are we going to identify with? So look for people whose lives line up with the truth of God's word and then follow their example as they follow Christ. So who are some people in your life that match up to that? Think about that. Think about the good that you see in them and imitate it. Well, pen and ink are a poor substitute for face-to-face -face fellowship. 
Don't put yourself in a self-imposed lockdown like we talked about before. Get together with your brothers and sisters in Christ, especially new people, perhaps, within the church, those who are serving the Lord. Get together with them, encourage them. And then finally, we can be certain that some will be faithful and some will wander. It's the reality of life in a broken church. I'm thankful that we say this a lot as an elder team. We just praise God that we're in a season of extraordinary blessing as a church. We haven't experienced any upheaval. We haven't experienced a church split. The Lord is blessing us in all of those areas, in our relationships, in our leadership teams, in our Sunday school, in the growth of the church. We're financially stable. He's blessing the missionaries that we support. It's a beautiful time, but we have to protect that. Every single one of you, as well as me, we play a role in that. So, we can be certain that some will be faithful, but some will wander. We want to we imitate that, which is good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for, on this Memorial Day, just to focus, first of all, on the, the greatest memorial remembering the death and resurrection of your son, his shed blood for our cleansing, God. We thank you and we praise you for that, God. That act of hospitality, though we were aliens, we were excluded from citizenship, you brought us in. You made us fellow members of your household. God, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Help us to show that same hospitality toward others, God. Help us to follow you in the truth, to walk in the truth. God, help us to imitate what is good. We can't do any of that apart from your spirit. So, God, work in us what is good and pleasing to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close with a, a song of worship. <clears throat>